all here. Glad you weren't blown away yesterday, or if you were, that you made your way back. That's a, that's a, a relief. Uh, I like that song. It's um, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, and, and it's about His strength and His uh, ability to help us. Our help is in the name of the Lord, and, and so we we think of His might and His power, perhaps, when we think of that. And and yet, there's also this idea of His steadfastness, His commitment. Um, and that uh, we, can, we can turn to him, that he's not going anywhere. And so I think we're going to see both of those ideas in the, uh, in the message this morning. Uh, before we get going, if anyone uh, needs a prayer card, uh, just uh, raise your hand, and uh, um, we'll uh, pick those up at the... Well, we can pick them up now. If you've already written one and you, you want it handed in, uh, just hold it up, wave it. Someone will, pick it, will grab it for you. And uh, we'll... Uh, Make sure that they're uh, prayed over at the end. So, all right, all good. Today's message is a little bit different as we uh, continue our, our series of conversations with women of the Bible. And um, there's not a, a whole lot of scripture in it. Okay? I, I'm going to be telling stories that are straight out of scripture, don't get me wrong, but I'm not reading a whole lot of scripture or giving you specific verses. However, I can tell you that when I sent the growth group lesson to the growth group leaders, I said, there's a whole lot of scripture in here. Um, so this can think of this as part one, and uh, the growth group is part two. Okay, So if you're not in a growth group, then you are missing out on, uh, on today's overall lesson. But I, I think part one will still uh, be, be relevant and of interest to you. Now, uh, from time to time, I've had an idea for a television show. I'm going to share it with you. I, I don't want you to run off to the big studios and uh, make money off it unless you give me a cut. Um, but, but my idea for the television show is that it follows around a pair, always a pair, right? Man, a woman, one white, one, one person of color. Um, and uh, they're, they're going, they are mental health experts. And they visit the people who are traumatized by other television shows or on other television shows. So, uh, you know, you go and you watch a, a superhero movie and there's this big dramatic fight that takes place in the streets of a city because the superheroes are always in cities. And uh, during this fight, they wipe out a skyscraper or an office, a floor of offices. And, and, and sometimes there's people in them and they just go flying who knows where. Other times, they're empty. Often, they're empty, strangely. I guess these fights always take place on Saturday. And, uh, but sometimes, it'll collapse. And so, our mental health experts in the new television show that I'm pitching, they, they come and they talk to the people who survived that attack. Okay? Survived Superman flying straight through their office floor, demolishing desks and partitions, breaking computers. And, uh, and, and then the building collapses. They get out. And our, our mental health experts come in and they sit down with them and they talk with them about that experience. And, and you know, part of it is that the people are saying, well, how, why, why did we survive when other people didn't when the building collapsed? You know, and they've got to work that through. And it's very real and, and gritty. Um, or, or maybe they visit with the families of the many, many people who are arrested on law and order um, over the years. And, and they consider, they sit down and they say, well, let, let's talk about your, your son, who, who clearly 
you know, got himself into a lot of trouble. What went wrong? What's the background story? What could you have done differently? And, and, and now, what are you going to do for him now that he's incarcerated? How are you going to care for him? And, and what will you do when he's released? And, and they'll follow that person because usually the story just goes on, right? And these people become throwaway. They're just props for the um, glory of the heroes who have solved the case and, and, and uh, seen justice done. And so while we're all celebrating the success of the good guys winning and the bad guys getting what's coming for them, these two mental health superheroes would be picking up the pieces of the mayhem, from the mayhem that is left behind in the wake of the superheroes. I feel like this is the situation that we find ourselves in today. Genesis is often called the, the patriarchal age, at least in, in biblical study, right? The patriarchal stage. That means it's about the men, okay? That's what a patriarch is. And, uh, and so usually, when we talk about the patriarchs, we're talking primarily about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they lived a long time ago. The, the events that, that uh, um, are described there uh, take place about 2000 BC, give or take a couple of centuries, okay? But uh, mostly somewhere around that time frame. And uh, if you're keeping track, the Stone Age is finished. Abraham and uh, Isaac Jacob, they're in the, about the middle of the Bronze Age. And then the Iron Age is, is still to come. And we'll get into that later on with about David and, uh, and the Philistines. They start making weapons of, of iron. And, and so they lived a long time ago. If you're trying to place this in history, um, it's several centuries before King Hammurabi. Anyone remember the Babylonian King Hammurabi from, from school? Uh, he created, is, is often given the credit for creating the first law code. Um, and there's a little statue, of, uh, not statue, but uh, column that has his laws written on it. And so um, anyway, so Abraham's a couple of hundred years before him. So we have these patriarchs who become the ancestors of all of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then eventually their 12 sons, who in turn become the, the ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're so important that they get a historical age named after them. Okay? The patriarchal age. But these guys weren't running around Canaan by themselves. Right? They're, they're not, you know, they're not uh, Indiana Jones and the off on a crusade running up and down the countryside. Um, they are with their families. They're with their wives. They're with their servants and their servants' families. Uh, and so they're, they're traveling as, as a large group of people. And so what we want to do is we're going to bring in, if you will, my TV psychologists to sit down, not with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but with those who are left in the wake of those superheroes. And so we start our conversation today with Sarah. 
Sarah is the matriarch, without a doubt, of this family tree. And I suspect that most of us are pretty familiar with her story. As they, as she and Abraham are approaching the ripe old age of 100, they didn't have any children. And yet God in his crazy wisdom continues to tell them you're going to have children. That's a lot of pressure on Sarah. But it, it, God doesn't just say you're going to have children. He says you're going to have children like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. Okay. Well, that's all right for Abraham, maybe. But Sarah's the one who's going to bear that particular burden. And so Sarah sits down at our bench. Actually, we've moved it inside today. They're sitting at a coffee table. And uh, she's going to be sitting with her granddaughter-in-law, Rachel. Rachel is married to Jacob, who is Sarah's grandson. Um, like Sarah, Rachel has great trouble having children. Well, what's different is that while Sarah was the only wife of Abraham, Rachel is actually the second wife of Jacob. Her father, you may remember, and we'll get into this a little more, he plays bait and switch um, with Jacob, tricking him into marrying his eldest daughter, Leah. So we had Leah to our picture here. And then, uh, and then a week later, he says, oh, okay, you can marry Rachel. And um, instantly, Jacob and Rachel's relationship is more complicated than either of them expected when they first met. And so as Sarah and Rachel sit down and talk over coffee, they share the pain that accompanied their infertility. For Sarah, she has this promise of a nation hanging over her head. It seems as though everything depends upon her. And she felt like such a failure. In fact, she tells Rachel about a day when some messengers came, and it turned out they were actually messengers from God, but, but they come to Abraham, and, and remember, they're in their 90s, and, and they tell Abraham, they say, hey, you and Sarah are going to have a, have a son by this time next year. Well, Sarah says to Rachel, she says, you know, those tent walls, they're so thin, you can hear everything, even if you're not in the room. And so she says, I laughed. And maybe it was the original LOL. She says, I laughed out loud. And they heard me. I felt a bit embarrassed about it. But honestly, I don't think those men know how things work. I'd really given up on having children. I couldn't understand what God was talking about. But... This was the patriarchal age. So if the patriarch is going to have a child, then I came up with a plan. I told my patriarch to try having children with my servant, Hagar. 
I thought if, if he's happy, if God's happy, he's happy. If he's happy, I'm happy. If I'm happy, everyone's happy. Right? But it didn't work like that. It was horrible. It was horrible. And, and it wasn't just that it was horrible that, that he and, and Hagar had, were pregnant. It wasn't just horrible the way I felt. It wasn't horrible every time I saw her thinking of my inadequacy, of what's wrong with me. She, she said, then I started acting horribly. All those years of hurt just seemed to come to the service and I was a horrible person and particularly horrible to Hagar to the point that she tried to run away. Eventually, I, I sort of settled down. I wasn't happy, but I, I, I wasn't as terrible. But I shouldn't have given up on God. Because lo and behold, God gave me a son. And finally, finally, I felt like I'd accomplished something with my life. Maybe all of those promises that God made to Abraham over all of those years, maybe, just maybe, they would come true after all. And so Rachel's been sitting at the table. And she's been nodding her head as Sarah talks. And she says, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. She says, my father messed up my marriage from the very beginning. He insisted that I couldn't be married before my older sister Leah. He really doesn't have a romantic bone in his body. It's all business for him. He didn't want to be stuck with a daughter that everyone says is ugly. And so... He made my should-have-been husband marry her. And I know Jacob really only wanted to marry me. But after we were married, I couldn't have children either. And then Jacob started having children with Leah. And I was so desperate. At one point, I just wanted to die. Well, what's the point of, of me living? What's the point of me going through this? What's the having it rubbed in my face every day at, at how easy it is for some women to have children? And for me, it's a wish and a dream. And, and then on top of that, Jacob and I started fighting, which really made no sense, but I was just mad at the world, at the injustice, that, at the way that I felt, and I blamed him although it was beyond his control. I was mad at God. Like you, Sarah, I even gave Jacob, my servant, to have children. And I thought it would make me feel better. I'd adopt them. They'd be mine. But it didn't. And after that, Leah just had more children. And then her servant had more children with my husband. And I'm still waiting. Now eventually God gave me a son. Like you, I wasn't 90. 
But I was so happy. I, I gave him a name. I called him Joseph, which means, God, will you give me more? And it took a while again, but eventually I had Benjamin. But I died giving birth to Benjamin. And, and, and it seems like I'm just a punchline in a, in a bad, sad joke. There's like, yes, wait all your life to get what you want, and then when you get it, you die in the process of receiving. And so, on that note, our TV show sort of steps back and the picture fades. And, and our experts, who are you and I, sit down with the other women in the scenario now. We needed two benches for, for this week. And the first woman we sit with is Hagar. Hagar is Sarah's Egyptian servant. And as we talk with Hagar, she explains, I had been a loyal servant to Sarah for years. We'd, I, I, I'd done everything I was asked. I, we'd talk about her grief. I'd listen as she, she described her inability to have children and how she felt about that. But then one day, out of the blue, she wants me to have her husband's child. To be honest, I felt exploited. It wasn't really like I could say no. It suddenly felt as though I wasn't of any value anymore. I wasn't appreciated for the way I washed the clothes or did the cooking. The only thing that mattered was getting Abraham a son. And sure enough, I got pregnant. And I know I kind of rubbed it in Sarah's face. But she, she flipped. She went right over the top. She went wild. I couldn't take it anymore. I ran away. But God saw me running. And God came and found me. And, and he promised me that, that my son would be great. A father of many people. If only I'd go back to Abraham and Sarah. So that's what I did. When Ishmael, my son, was about 13, Sarah herself finally got, got pregnant. At 91, if you'd believe it. A few years later, they're having a, a party for this kid. And I admit I got a bit carried away. I mean, it's one kid, right? I've got one kid, they've got one kid. But no, their kid's special. Their kid's the promised kid. Well, Sarah saw me laughing. And it sent her over the edge. This time she made Abraham send me away into the desert with just a bottle of water and a little food. It really wasn't enough. We get out there, it's hot. We, we didn't know where we were going. We ran out of food. We ran out of water. And we would have died. But God showed up again 
and rescued us. Now, things turned out all right for us, but I never felt as though I meant anything to him. All those years of service, and then I'm made to give them a child. I give them a child, and then they get another one, and I'm just thrown away like I'm nothing. Well, Leah's been listening to Hagar. And so at this point, she chimes in and she says, I'm so sorry for you, Hagar. I relate so much to what you're saying. Now, I wasn't a servant, so, so my life was different. The truth is, I was actually the first wife of Jacob. A position of privilege. But he never loved me. I was just the wreath on his shiny new car that he named Rachel. Can you believe that he told people that I had weak eyes? Hello? He couldn't see who he'd married. <clears throat> he thought that my little sister hung the moon. She couldn't even give him any children. Me, on the other hand, I gave him six sons. They're the names of her, all her sons. Or the, the, what, the way she, she names them is that she, she sort of says, this is what I'm thinking, and then she picks one name, one word, out of that thought, and that word becomes the, the name of the child. But the, the word, or the name, signifies the expanded thought. And so my, my first child... I named, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. And even after six children, my last child, my last son, I name, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time, my husband will treat me with honor. Six sons. And still... He doesn't love me. And can you believe that when Rachel's servant, not even Rachel herself, when Rachel's servant had a second son, she named it, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. Hello? The score is six to zero. <clears throat> the substitute may have scored a couple, but the score is still six to zero. When I look back on it, it seems as though we both got the opposite of what we wanted. I just wanted to be loved, says Leah. That's all I ever wanted. Instead, God gave me children. Now, children are well and good, and I'm glad for them, and I appreciate my sons, and and, and, and they've been a blessing to me. I never got the love that I was looking for. And, and Rachel, on the other hand, she always had a husband who loved her from day one. But then she just wanted children. And God didn't give them to her. And so as the camera zooms away, 
from them and as the picture fades, we realize that these patriarchs did everything that they did within a complicated set of relationships. But at the core of each of these women's lives is a longing to be valued and appreciated. And, and so if we were to sit with Sarah and Rachel, or if we were to come back and ask them a question, and we say to them, what makes you valuable, Sarah? What makes you valuable, Rachel? I think they would say something like, having children would make me valuable. Perpetuating our family line, giving God his great nation that he's been talking about. That, that would make me valuable. And then if we, we sat down with uh, Hagar and Leah and we asked them the same question, they would probably respond with something like, I just want to know that I'm loved and that I'm valued for who I am. Regardless of whether I have children or not. I have no confidence that my husband would have kept me around if I didn't have children for him. I don't think I'm worth anything without them. And so 4,000 years later, that's a whole lot of history. The search for significance, I believe, is something that's still important to us. So take a moment and consider what makes you feel valued and appreciated. Have you ever had a job where you didn't receive any positive feedback? Do you stick at the job? Do you enjoy the job? Do you love getting up for work in the morning? Because your job doesn't give you any satisfaction. It doesn't give you any sense of significance or appreciation. Maybe you find value in your marriage. Or if you have children, as a parent, you find value. Um, some of us might find value in our educational accomplishments. Right? They even give us a certificate to hang on the wall to say, look, I'm valuable. Maybe it's the friends that we have that make us feel as though we have a place to belong. And on the flip side of that, if we're missing in those areas, and there may be other areas, if we're missing in those areas, don't we perhaps often feel as though we don't have significance? We don't have a purpose, that something is missing in our lives, that maybe we don't belong, that nobody would miss us if we weren't here. If I wasn't at my job anymore, I'd just find someone else. I'm not really that significant. And, and we could go down a list. If I hadn't paid my university to get my degrees, they wouldn't care about me. I'm not so important to them. And, and, and we can say, the, because all of these things could be gone. Right? If, if that's where our value is if that's where our significance is, it could be gone. Now, I think they're important. We're, we're intended to have relationships. We're designed to be with other people. We're designed to work. We're designed to learn. We're designed to accomplish things. 
And, and when we do those things, we are supposed to feel good about it. That's the way God has built us. It's the way society is constructed. So I'm not diminishing those. I'm also certainly not wanting to say, hey, you know, like, if you are struggling to have children or have struggled to have children, well, just get over it. If you're not married but you want to be, just get over it. I'm not saying that at all. It's not. They are important. They're meaningful relationships, meaningful stages of life. But what I want is for each of us to leave here today to know this truth, right? To, to, to deep down inside of us know that we have value because that's how God has made each one of us. And, and, and we need all those other things to be complete human beings, to be compute, complete healthy people. We need those other things. But while those things can come and go, the value that God has placed within each of us will always remain. And, and, and I think if, if you're, you know, I'm not going to read the whole New Testament to, to try to demonstrate this to you, but if you just think back to, to, Easter, uh, to, to Christmas, sorry, the whole point of Jesus coming to earth is to demonstrate God's love for the world. And, and sometimes maybe you want to say, oh yeah, God loves the world. That's not the same as saying God loves me. And so I want to tell you God loves you. That, that God loves the world, but he loves the individuals that are in the world also. And, and, and so Jesus becoming human expresses God's love for all humans, and it gives value to it. Our flesh, our physical being, is not just a temporary inconvenience before we get to spend a spiritual eternity with God. Jesus became flesh. It has value in and of itself. And our lives have value. And so I do want to just point you to this verse. From Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And here that we are reminded that God loves us. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and I want to think about this in, in terms of, of the four women that we, uh, we just spent the morning with. And, and, and particularly, think of Rachel and Leah. You see, when you look at this verse, you say, give me an example. I'll give you an example, right? Jacob wasn't going to work a day to marry Leah. But he would work 14 years to be able to marry Rachel. And, and so very rarely will anyone work 14 years for a beautiful wife, though perhaps they might happen. But when we were all still Leah's, and that's unfair to Leah, very rarely will someone risk their life even for a good person. Although they may. But God, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were still opposed to him, you, you see, maybe we, we think that, well, God's up in heaven and he looks down and goes, oh, well, look, that, that, 
they're really very good. I, I think I'm going to go down and save that person. Look how good they are. And, and he's looking at me when he said that. <laughs> and, and so sometimes we think, oh, yeah, that's how God works. Right? He's, he's up there looking for those good people. This is, oh, yes. Yes, I'm going to go down and get them. The scripture is consistent. He's saying that God looks down and goes, boy, they're a mess. I'm going to go down. Die for them. Rescue them. And bring them into my family. And that is the value that we have. Not that we're good, but that we're God's. And the rest of all those other things, all those other relationships, as important as they are, they're all built on that truth. That God created each of us. Not just for significance, but he created us with significance. So my prayer for you this week is not only that you have a week lived in awareness of your significance, but that you treat those around you in a way that reminds them that they also people of significance.